This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we are going to be talking to Dr. Jose Fernandez. Dr. Jose Fernandez is an assistant professor in the Latina, Latino, or Latinx studies program at the University of Iowa. He teaches courses in Latin studies and Latin literature in the United States. His book, Against Marginalization, Convergences in Black and Latinx Literatures, which we will discuss today, compares episodes in Black and Latinx literary histories, interpreting the emergence of both literary traditions as a fight for social, cultural, and artistic recognition. Dr. Fernandez, thanks so much for coming on today. Hi, Annette. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. Um, Really excited to talk about your book today. And um, before we get into it, I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of discuss, you know, the background of this book, how it happened, why you wrote it, um, and maybe even some of your background, where you went to school, where you grew up, just in the types of things that affected the writing of this book. I'm sure. um, Probably I will start with my background and then I'm going to move. Uh, to my academic background. Um, I grew up in Mexico City. Uh, then when I was 18 years old, uh, I, uh, I went to a small um, school, Northeastern Illinois University, and I was an ESL student, so I learned English, a second language. I was always interested in English, um, like learning the language, uh, reading, uh, and learn about the culture. Uh, in the literature. So when I started college, um, I toyed with the idea of a science major, but then I decided to go into English. Um, I did, I got my BA in uh, English literature, my master's, and then I went to grad school to Northeastern Illinois, I mean, Northern Illinois University, sorry. Um, And that's where uh, I I was always interested in uh, literature, American literature. Uh, I remember, like filling up the gaps in my knowledge. So I went to I did I went to high school in Mexico, and when I started to 
taking English classes, it was like I was hearing about all these American authors and the literary tradition that I wasn't familiar. So that was uh, filling in the gaps uh, with American literature. But then um, I always, or I remember being particularly interested in uh, reading African-American or Black authors. Uh, but there was seldom the opportunity uh, when I start, when I went to co- college in the early 2000s. Um, I remember waiting like two semesters to take an African-American literature course. Uh, but then I had more opportunities as I moved both into uh, my degrees for um reading uh, different periods. So um, it might have been during my PhD studies when uh, I had the opportunity to immerse in African-American literature and made it one of my areas of um, specialization and part of my uh, comp exams along American literature. Uh, So I came to Latinx literature, Latino literature um, very late into grad school. Uh, I didn't have uh, a lot of opportunities to take uh, Latinx literature courses. Um, And once I started teaching um, in the early 2010s, um, that's when um, I had the opportunity to, um, again, filling in the gaps with uh, Chicanx, uh, Latinx literature, and then teaching classes. And then I started teaching classes in the um, in African-American literature, Latinx literature, American literature. And that's probably the origin of the uh, the project. I came from uh, all this background on African-American literature. And then when I started reading about Latinx literature, I started um, getting uh, pieces, bit and pieces of uh, from scholars in anthologies when uh, I, I mean, there were clearly uh, points of similarities between the literature and the histories. Uh, but that was the origin of um, this project, actually, who took like took several years to complete. Yeah, I'm sure um, book book length work is always a very long labor um, <laughs> that develops over years and years. Um, great, and kind of just before we really get into things, um, as people who are listening probably know. Uh, There's a lot of controversy over the last 10 years around the terms, you know, Latina, Latino, Latinx, Latine, uh, etc. And you kind of discussed this briefly at the beginning of the book. Could you talk a little bit about the terms that you use, um, if you use particular terms in particular situations, and then how you kind of developed that decision, where you're coming from, and why you think a certain term is best. Sure. Uh, thanks for asking the question. Um, in the book, you, you're right. Or um, I remember, like, there are certain sections in the book when I needed to start with the terminology. And one of the ways I used to think about a terminology that was helpful for me, and I tried to incorporate it in the book, is how in the context of literature, cultural production, uh, terms to describe communities of color, people of color, uh, minoritized communities, uh, has been through, uh, it evolved, and uh, scholars talk about this process, like you mentioned, it has to be contextualized uh, in a certain particular period, and looking at uh, 
social um, events. So I remember um, reading uh, or looking at anthologies in African-American literature that began as Negro literature at the turn of the 20th century, then in the 60s and 70s, um, Afro-American, then African-American, and then Black. And I think Black is one of the terms that, that have remained somehow context, contents. Um, and in the um, in relation to Latinx literature, uh, if I notice or I want to believe that it was a certain uh, process in terminology related with cultural production. Um, and that's what I tried to, to do in the book, uh, focus on how can we look at a body of, uh, a group of authors, a body of literature, in the case, for example, in Latino literature, uh, that often has been um, described from different perspectives or like the experience of different groups, Puerto Ricans, Dominican Americans, Cuban Americans. Um, and I, I, the, the way I decided to tackle that is uh, think about those groups um, as um, not homogeneous, um, but more as what would be a way to like incorporate this body of work from authors who have been traditionally underrepresented, marginalized, and make it into Latino, Latina, Latinx. Um, and I know, I, I'll say briefly, I, compl- I understand um, like the resistance to some of these terms, um, the idea of Latinx uh, in certain contexts, in certain communities. And that's something that um, when I teach, uh, intro to Latinx studies, or I've been teaching intro to the Latinx studies recently, uh, the students, um, Latino students or not Latino students, um, they're new to those terms. Sometimes um, as a group, we think um, this may ha- this may, this terms may serve a purpose in, in our case, uh, in the context of academia. But when we go outside uh, the experience of different groups, uh, maybe very different, and that's probably uh, one of the point, one of the moments when uh, these terms become more. Com- uh, it's harder to agree upon, like what terminology to use. Definitely, um, Latinx is the one that I'm seeing now. I would say in the academic community, definitely. Um, and this is kind of a question of semantics and etymologies and all of that. But um, I think your point about trying to use the particular when you're outside of the academy makes sense to me, Um, especially when you're talking about particular people. Um, And speaking of that, your book revolves around the idea that Black and Latinx communities have experienced similar struggles. Um, And I'm wondering how you're balancing kind of comparing the marginalization that they've experienced, but then also acknowledging the differences in their experiences um, and how you do that throughout the book. Thank you. Um, the, the way probably I try also, uh, going back to the structure of the book, as I develop some of these ideas or think through those, like you say, these uh, similar uh, periods or similar Characteristics in relation to the marginalization of different groups. Um, I, again, like when I began this project and when I started um, doing research or trying to write about African American authors, uh, I mean, like the history of, of uh, the struggle of African American authors was it, it's more 
it was more apparent for because of like the social, economic, or um, historical reasons. But um, although I want to like make a parallel with the struggles, I was noting that some of the um, obstacles, uh, particularly in relation to cultural production, for example, um, Mexican American. Um, authors in the Southwest and the turn of the 20th century. Um, I did, I, again, at the beginning of the project, I didn't realize how much of their struggles um, or their attempt to be represented in the literature were parallel to like the marginalization or uh, the exclusion of um, African-American authors. So um, I think that, 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 that was, or for me, it remains the important aspect of like the comparisons or points of convergence oftentimes or uh in my case i was more familiar with the struggle of african-american authors than with mexican-american latinx or latinx authors uh so i think what the book the book tries to do is like look at those struggles comparatively but i will agree that even within Latinx authors, every time that there's a comparison about the struggles, uh, I could run the risk of um, minimizing some aspects of that struggle or uh, emphasizing aspects of that struggle that may or may not be in um, every Latinx author. Well, when and probably when it comes to African-American authors, um, it could be more context. Yeah, um, that's always the struggle. I feel like going back when you're trying to make comparisons without kind of flattening the things that make them unique. Um, but, you know, obviously your book does a good job of that because you're looking at case studies, very particular case studies. Um, and speaking of that, while everyone that you talk about in this book has experienced and to a degree resisted marginalization, Black and Latinx authors that you talk about in this book are not the kind of perfect social justice warriors who fight for the inclusion of all people in an intersectional way that readers might imagine, right? And that's what we think when we think about, oh, convergences between Black and Latinx authors who are trying to resist marginalization. It's not quite that simple. Um, for example, you talk about Baldwin and Anaya as reluctant spokespersons for civil rights, uh, which I think is a good way of kind of understanding how they were dealing with the pressures of their times. Um, and I just wondered if you could walk us through how you're retaining their social context while also still connecting the struggles that they had to current events, current struggles that communities are dealing with now. Sure. Um, so, for example, in that particular example of Baldwin and Anaya, and I completely agree uh, that, for example, the um, social activism of, of some contemporary authors of color might look different from the activism or social awareness or fight for social justice uh, from authors of the late 60s and 70s. Um, what was interesting to me, uh, for example, in that discussion of Anaya and Baldwin was um, based on their training as writers, their um, artistic vision, their aesthetic choices. Um, they wanted to be artists. They want to be considered artists. But um, 
perhaps at that time, um, mainstream white authors were not doing social activism, so they found it a little bit incompatible. But uh, like you mentioned, uh, it's not because the social issues were not there or like it's not because there wasn't any um, need for a uh, fight for civil rights. Uh, but what I will say about James Baldwin, for example, and a lot of scholars have written about this, is that although on the one hand, he want to say, I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm not an activist. Um, on the other hand, he went out of his way more than a lot of um, other authors, African-American authors at the time, uh, to fight for those civil rights and be active uh, and travel to the South. Um, and to a degree, it's the same with Anaya. I think, again, based on their um, artistic vision, they wanted to um, they wanted to be uh, perceived as uh, first and for- foremost as writers, but that also didn't mean that Anaya, uh, when he wrote uh, autobiographical pieces, he talks about his involvement with civil rights. So it's, it, I agree, it's not the form of um, social activism that we'll consider today. Uh, by some authors of color, but it was also uh, somehow dictated by their circumstances at the time. Definitely. Um, and that's something that we always have to kind of wrestle with, the um, the undue burden that anyone who is Black or Latin or otherwise marginalized or minoritized is going to have that burden of having to um, be a spokesperson or kind of bear the burden of being the person who has to further their group's struggles um, when obviously white authors and white artists can exist without that burden. Um, and that's why looking at kind of, I, this is my area more, but looking at whiteness studies in convergence with Black and Latinx studies and seeing how whiteness is kind of unnamed and unoperated, but it's still existing in a way that is constraining the existence of Black and Latinx authors, for example, who are forced to deal with these really hard struggles of identity and you know <laughs> who they are and what they're doing and why their work matters and having it to be some type of social commentary for it to matter, I think is definitely something that... Um, you consider fully in your your book. Um, and then going off of that, you talk about how certain historical writers, publishers, consumers of this art or this work or these literatures have valued Black or Latinx literatures not necessarily for engaging with the larger questions of race, ethnicity, et cetera, but more for as their artistic or aesthetic merit, right? Um, And then I'm thinking about, rather than the chapter we just talked about, more on chapter four, where you talk about the work of Rodriguez and Ellison. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how the question of aesthetics and artistic merit um, impacted them and impacted the way that they approached writing. Thank you for asking that question. And I think it's... um great question and an opportunity for me to um, come back to a premise or an idea that uh, from the beginning, from the introduction, or that 
stars book uh, when I try to argue that um, African-American authors, Latinx authors, um, whatever we want to think about the beginning of the tradition or when we uh, start to incorporate uh, those literatures into the larger American literature um, or canon, uh, they've always been in conversation with um, uh, literary currents, um, concerns uh, in the tradition. And I think Ellison is a good example of a person who tried, I believe, as hard as he could to be part of that tradition. And scholars have written books about this, how um, in his writing technique, uh, his aesthetic vision, he 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 tried to align himself with uh, modernist authors. He'll forget modernism or what one way to look at modernism uh, as a period, it's something that I was familiar with, again, based on my training in American literature, my readings in American literature. Um, but uh, there was also a tension uh, as from what we've been talking about of like how much to present your, your work and yourself and your experiences or what you write about. For, I'm thinking about Invisible Men uh, without engage with the social or discrimination uh, or American history. Uh, but in their their public persona as writers, I think Ellison was as much interested to, again, be aligned with mainstream American literature than being aligned with African-American literature. And what I will say briefly about Rodriguez is something very similar I found, um, or what I would consider is, is very similar that uh, Richard Rodriguez, I've, um, I've, when I read him, Richard Rodriguez, one of like the, um, perhaps the one Latinx Mexican American writer that I read as an undergrad. And not too long ago, I just found out that people, their first reading is Richard Rodriguez. So on the one hand, I found it um, very compelling uh, that Richard Rodriguez got himself immersed in the American literary tradition. He wanted to read, he wanted to learn. And he, and as I believe, as he progressed as a writer, he again he wanted to be like a writer, a thinker, an intellectual, but not particularly a Mexican American intellectual. And I think that's the tension because also he could not just like you mentioned earlier, like he could not just present himself. I'm just one more American author, but like he will always have to come with this, but um with this identity as a Mexican-American writer that people, regardless at the time, like also we were talking earlier, like in the 80s, uh, late 70s, 80s and 90s, um, most often he will be um, asked to speak or write as an American, as a Mexican-American um, writer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The point about Ellison is interesting to me because, you know, Invisible Man is such a classic. It's one of the first, well, not one of the first, but I definitely remember reading it as a kid, like a pretty young kid when I was like 10 or 11. And it was like, oh, this is a classic. I had no idea that it was about race 
at all. I mean, I didn't start reading black literature till I was a little bit older, like 12, 13. And then, and then it was like, oh, this is a classic. And then later it was like, this is a social commentary on race is the next thing I learned about it or that people kept saying like, oh, it's this veiled allegory for race for him as a black man. And I was like, I don't see that at all. And then going to your work as, you know, him saying, you know, I, I want to be, you know, an American writer and I want to be judged by these standards. And I don't want people to look at my work as like a black American work. I want it to be American. Right. So that's kind of a weird trajectory. And I feel like that's a trajectory that a lot of Americans follow when it comes to this type of literature where it's like, Oh, this is American. Oh no, it's black. Oh, but it's American is what he wanted it to be. Right. So my original kind of conception of it maybe was actually accurate um, according to what Emerson might have wanted or Ellison might have wanted. Not, not Emerson. That's a different person. Um, so going back to um, – you kind of touched on this already, but your book is focused on not only you know literature itself, but then you talk a lot about the publishing processes, which – as a media historian, um, I kind of do what you do too. And it's like, oh, this is the event of this person's life and this is the history. But then it's also, what are the processes? What are the industries? What are the production cultures that are surrounding the publication of whatever it was? And how did it come to be? Um, and you talk about how that process is... Um, central to the inclusion or exclusion of certain work um, and the decisions that are made. So you talk about how the publishing industry is a white-dominated space that has allowed them to act as de facto gatekeepers for, again, publishing or not publishing certain works. And I was wondering if you could expand on that in terms of this project and how that affects your analyses of the Black and Latinx authors. Thank you again, and thank you for um, allowing me to discuss or mention the idea of the role of the publishing industry or literary production uh, more broadly. So again, one of the things that I remember uh, when I was starting to like, when immersing on what I will consider the Latinx literary tradition, Puerto Rican authors, um, again, Cuban-American authors, um, Mexican-American, is um, that lack of publishing opportunities. But I remember also, um, as you were mentioning, when I read uh, Charles Chestnut, um, it might be as an undergrad trying to fill the gaps or later on in uh, English studies, uh, in his um he struggles just to get published. And again, I think uh, scholars today, like you say, recently, the last 20 years, uh, they talk more about like um, literary production, like the means of literary production, who gets published, who gets excluded, uh, who have those opportunities, how many people, like if we see like a group of like three or four women of color, we might think like, oh, the, the field is becoming so diverse or... Uh, gender inclusive when in reality it's like the same three or four so since the beginning of or early the earlier earlier mexican-american authors pre-1960 it it seemed to me like they also struggle with um often with that idea of uh, 
Rudolf Anaya, for example, uh, I remember he tried to get published uh, by New York publisher, mainstream publishers, without any success. Um, and but is it, it like you mentioned that these are case studies, but uh, some of them and through the um, moments in the literary tradition, Latinx literary tradition, uh, it's a regular theme. So I I believe definitely. Uh, literary production, the exclusion of authors of color, uh, it's um, it's a result of larger forces, but it not only plays in the literature, but as you mentioned, I mean, it could be like in other sort forms of media, and it happens today, and I talk to students often about this, and um, it's like, it's there, like we, we see it every day, or students see, I mean, I, I myself, students and myself, we see it every day, but we seldom stop to consider why there's these tropes in film about Latinx people that we take it. Anyway, there are very few, they're very recurrent. And if we look back at the history of um, film or television, and the scholars have done this, um, like, it's just come from a place of exclusion and when uh, people of color are included. I mean, it's the same, I believe, in African-American uh, history or literature, uh, they're included. It begins with these um, stereotypes uh, or uh, what white producers or white editors think that how Latinx or African-American literature or film or people, black people in film should look like or perform. Right. And that's this kind of hard process to account for where it's, oh, we have to use these stereotypes because that's what people recognize, right, to indicate that this is characters Latin or Black. And then that reifies existing stereotypes and forms stereotypes, but then is reinforced in kind of this cycle of violence, I guess you could even say, where there's there's no kind of um, way out. I mean, there's sort of a way out. There's sort of been some development, but a lot of scholars right now are also arguing, I'm thinking mostly of like Black women scholars that I follow, are arguing that we need to move beyond the representational representational politics side of things. So like you mentioned in publishing, it's like, you know, Colson Whitehead and a few other authors are really dominating right now. And um, there's kind of this like white fragility feeling that, oh, if you're not black or a woman, you're not going to get published. I feel like there's that kind of sentiment which is obviously ironic because it's never been true and out throughout history. Um, but there's this kind of like, oh, they're black and they're a woman and or they're black and or they're women or whatever it is. And I'm wondering how you've kind of thought about that. Cause you do talk about even just like the numbers of people who are getting published, you know, recently or back then. Um, like the kind of the essentialization of race is something I'm really interested in. Like, oh, by nature of their blackness, now they are a black author and then they fit this kind of representational diversity quota that's happening. Um, so I'm wondering how you've kind of thought about that or dealt with that in terms of like thinking about quote unquote progress. Like, is it sheer numbers? Like, oh, there were more black women 
authors in this past two years than there ever were, something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> From the 1960s onward, uh, or I'll start with uh, what I remember was me at the beginning also, uh, or as I developed the project or the book, is that I found that um, uh, also based on what we've been discussing, um, it's it seems to me like from the 60s to the 2000s, it was hard for uh, most African-American authors. Again, we talk about Ralph Ellison, like we were talking about, like, is he, is he, if Invisible Men is about race or it isn't, or is he talking about social issues? Uh, Latinx authors, some Latinx authors and African-American authors, um, I thought they, they it, it was expected or they couldn't escape engaging with social issues and like fights for representation and inclusion and um, uh, um, social justice for their particular communities. But I will agree that, for example, after the 2000, and that's what um, some of the scholars write about, is like we cannot keep writing about, um, like you say, right, like perpetuate or like like holding on to like uh, certain narratives. And I think. In the past two, three decades, definitely it's more a, a concerned effort either or by both um, authors of color and scholars to look beyond, right? Like not everything is about fight against for civil rights. Not everything is, again, um, uh, depicting aesthetically uh, the the horrors of Jim Crow segregation, of marginalization of Mexican-Americans uh, in the Southwest at the start of the 20th century. Uh, but, um, so I agree with that argument. I, I think um, authors of color today have more opportunities to um, move in different directions. But when it comes to the publishing industry, like you say, I, um, and this is also that I read recently, I believe in the New York Times, that now we're coming into like authors of color need to play certain scenes. Um, I remember one that I remember is like the police stuff scene that now like in a lot of narratives, um, it's coming present in, um, I don't have, I mean, I, as you or I, I find it a, an interesting um, permutation of the narratives that writers of color um, describe, engage, but um, I don't know how, like how, like you were discussing earlier, how how easy it's to move away to those narratives when there's still most authors of colors uh, at the mercy of like larger forces, like they need to get published, they need to find an agent, uh, they would like to get an advance for their work and things like that. Right. And it's like in the past, the narrative of police brutality would be erased or not be able to be told at all. And now it can be told, but then now what's happening is it's kind of getting commodified and, you know, it's, it's like they're deploying these stories and then it's the the narrative of black pain I, I don't know if you've seen that kind of discussion like the fact that netflix is obsessed with black pain like people who are african or african descendants having this kind of narrative of they are in pain or they are going to be experiencing pain and then it's it's kind of the sensationalized dis- description and depiction of um, black suffering that people 
a lot of people in the black community specifically are fighting against. So it, it's like, how do you win kind of deal? Um, <laughs> Cause we don't want those stories to be overlooked or just ignored. Obviously we need their people to know that black, black um, pain and suffering is happening because of police brutality and other forces. But is that the only thing that's happening? Right. And then you have the black joy kind of like, counter to that that's trying to um reclaim humanity it's like there's the whole scale of human experience there um so yeah that's a question i haven't remotely been able to find an answer to um but yes it's uh complicated (laughs) um speaking of which as we're kind of talking about events that are happening right now and where this book ended up for you and if it's kind of leading into other projects, are you working on anything now either with your teaching or with your research um, that's kind of percolating? Yeah. Um, uh, when, when I was writing, I remember a section, uh, a chapter in the book about uh, what we were talking earlier about the history of literary production, the influence of publishers, um, the publishing industry, um, I I realized that there are several scholars out there of um, Black literary studies, Latinx literary studies, um, that they're focused on um, either Spanish language print culture or Black print culture and um, do kind of like the creative intellectual work uh, that wasn't allowed by uh, mainstream publishers. And also these scholars, I think they're trying to counteract the idea of that, what we think of um, literary production, I mean, the way they, I believe, um, most kind of quotation work, like you look at the literature, you look at the works, uh, even the Western canon, the American literary canon, all the older, the pre-60s literary canon, uh, but not everything is um, just uh, book production. So um, although, like you mentioned, like I, I, I touch on that, I try to describe that in the book, um, I'm just very interested in these days about like all, I mean, what other uh, scholars are doing in, in this regard, like uh, discovering, like for example, um, one example that I'm amazed by, uh, John Mor- Moran Gonzalez's work, um, Border Renaissance, and where he talks about um, Mexican-American civil rights organizations in uh, LULAC, um, the League of Latin American, um, League of La- League, of Latin American, um, sorry, I'm looking out on the on the acronym, but um, they come with Lula new news, and they're um, they describe they, it's a vehicle for uh, Mexican American authors to um, to um, write about civil rights uh, and write fiction and write poetry. So these days, what I'm interested in is like uh, continue in that um, line of investigation. Uh, because there are a lot of, again, also these stories have been told um, in different works. Um, I think um, what I like to think of uh, part of the work I do is like a synthesis of like different developments or like different uh, Mexican-American authors. Um, Alfonso Perales, for example, um, 
Arturo Schamber in New York City at the turn of the 20th century, and even a little bit earlier, Jose Marti. But all of these authors, again, um, although they, some of them published, like Jose Marti actually was able to be published in New York City, uh, the bulk of their work uh, in the U.S. context comes from print culture and newspapers. Yeah, I just looked that book up when you were talking. Um, Texas, 1930s, The League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's interesting. That's actually what my doctoral advisor, Michael Fulhag, studies, is um, Mexicans in Anglo relations um, kind of in the, the north or in the Southwest region of the United States um, in terms of print culture, because he's a journalist. Um, so, and that's kind of what I do a little bit, uh, Cuba news production um, in, the 1800, in the 1800s, early 1800s mostly, um, and looking at those print cultures. So that's really interesting. There's a lot of good stuff that's happening right now, I think in that area. So that's going to be really exciting to see kind of where that takes you. Well, this was great. Hopefully everyone's able to pick up the book, read, um, and see kind of what the specifics are of your argument. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today and talking about your book. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Till next time. <laughs>